Welcome to Dinger Derby, the only podcast completely devoted to Texas Tech baseball. Join your host, Keith Patrick, every week for team news, guests, ranking updates, and game reports from opening weekend all the way through Omaha. We'll be hitting taters with the Red Raiders all season long. This is Dinger Derby. Welcome into the Dinger Derby podcast, the only podcast devoted 100% to Texas Tech Red Raider baseball. I'm your host, Keith Patrick, here to preview this weekend conference road series against the Kansas State Wildcats. Your Red Raiders headed to the Little Apple, Manhattan, Kansas. Going to face off with the Wildcats in what looks like it'll probably be a fairly cold and rainy weekend up there in Manhattan. Not unusual this time of year. The Red Raiders have seen some bad weather before. Not necessarily a time you see tons of offensive production, but we hope that that changes in Manhattan. Don't want you to forget that the Red Raiders will be in the Sweet 16 today, Thursday, as I drop this episode, facing off with the Michigan Wolverines out there in Anaheim, California. That game will be at 8.39 p.m. Central Time. You can see that on CBS. I've been watching March Madness games on my March Madness app on on the Roku, and I've really been enjoying that. It's been just an easy way to watch some good basketball. Excited about the Red Raiders as they look to go to their second Elite Eight in a row. Hopefully they're able to pull that off. That would be a first in the history of Texas Tech University. So the Red Raiders are heading to Manhattan this weekend. As I said, you can see all three games on ESPN3. The Friday night game will be at 6 p.m., Saturday game at 4 p.m., and the Sunday at 1 p.m. I would watch Twitter, though, and any other outlet that you get the news I think that you might see some games change. There's a lot of rain over the state of Kansas right now. Might end up seeing a doubleheader one of those days. Who knows? But that's what it looks like right now. 6 p.m., 4 p.m., 1 p.m., all on ESPN3. And, of course, you can catch those games on the Texas Tech Sports Network. That's Double Team 97.3 in Lubbock. You can listen on the 97.3 mobile app as well to regular season Texas Tech sports. And speaking of that radio broadcast, you heard Jamie Lint in the first episode of the season helping us kind of recap 2018 and look ahead to 2019 in general. Well, this episode, we're going to have Mike Gustafson on. Excited to have Gus on. He's just an absolute wealth of knowledge when it comes to baseball. Not only Texas Tech baseball, and he was a player for a time for Texas Tech back in the day, but also just has been around this program and has been around the sport so long. Just some impressive knowledge. I really, really enjoy listening to him on the broadcast with Jamie Lent and occasionally on television with Robert Giovanetti as well. So, so we're just going to dive right in here. Mike, thanks so much for coming on. Let's talk a little bit about how this season has gone and you know what you've seen from the Red Raiders so far. You've been in the booth, whether it's TV or radio, for just about every game. What have you seen from the team so far this season? Yeah, I think it's um, – I, I think, I mean, just my general evaluation, I think there's a little more depth in the arms. I think there's a few more arms this year than maybe we had last year, but I would also say that this team may be – a little bit shorter than last year's team offensively. Mm -hmm. And that's a very general, simple evaluation. And it may be too general and cursory, but that's where we are right now. I think they're still looking for one more bat, Uh, whether it got corner outfielder slash DH sort of wherever, wherever it is that masters isn't. And it looks like there's been some platoon as well with master spot. And so it's the friends of mine that I eat lunch with. We talk about it all the time that there's, opportunities being given to certain guys in certain spots and you can see them and just sort of based on coach Tadlock's you know habits over the past few years you can tell when a guy's getting a shot or maybe when he's gonna you know gonna step out of the step out of the limelight for a little while while and uh you know I I, it was interesting because I thought I thought Morrell found three barrels the other day 
Um, and, you know, he had the one hit to show for it, hit a couple nose balls on the button. And whether that means he's in at shortstop or whether that means he's in his DH, I don't know, but I wouldn't be surprised to see him get some action up in Manhattan. Interesting. Yeah. And now he had, I remember he had an error in Frisco right. when he got put in in favor of Baker in the middle of the game, but I didn't remember how he did specifically. That was on Monday that he got the start, wasn't it? Yep. Yep. And, and, you know, and there was a hiccup near the end of that game and you and I may never figure out exactly who it, who it was, but they didn't cover second again. That's right. A couple times that happened this weekend. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, that's the time it had been with Gabe. And so, you know, that people that are kind of crowing for, uh, you know, wanting to try some different guys at shortstop, and we've got all these guys, and da 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 da. da the, the, you know, one of the things that sort of goes with that, the, the the downside of that can often be communications and just being in sync with the other guy across the middle infield. Right, and there's not. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. There's not just an automatic cover there. I mean, that's an all that's all communication based on your defense there from the short and and second base of who's going to cover in that situation, isn't it? Yeah, it should be. It certainly was when I was there, and I've seen it that way at varying times since then. You know, we. We were always hiding our, you know, hiding our face behind our glove and relaying kind of an open mouth, closed mouth to each other at short and second. And if, if I went open mouth, you went closed mouth. You know, we were relaying the opposite to each other. Uh, if I was calling the signals, you know, my senior year, I was the guy that would do that, and I would go closed mouth, and you would go open mouth, and so we were clear that, you know, and so I suspect that they're doing something like that. There could also be some automatics on things like that that maybe. Maybe Klein's got the throw on this particular pitch, but when that guy squares around, and and this is why this particular thing happened on the time that that Gabe was playing short and they didn't cover the bag. Sometimes when a guy will square around, it becomes an automatic shortstop cover, and maybe maybe that was just the miscommunication or just not having played there a bunch recently right. that, that kicked in. But either way, we've seen two throws over the five game stretch get sailed into center field with two infielders looking at each other and i'm sure that's a source of aggravation it is and and but i think i mean we could probably agree that's not really on braxton no absolutely not i mean unless there's you know sometimes if you get in a first and third situation you'll have a deal where you're going to pump fake to second and look to third or something but neither of those was that right if he just came up and misread the sign and pump and threw it to second instead of pump faking it or whatever then you could have some miscommunication from braxton but both of those as i recall were just Runner on first trying to steal second, and Braxton put a throw on the bag. Yeah. <laughs> two hops out there to noisy. Right. Well, and so in in that vein of looking for a bat, I mean, it was the Baylor series last year where you really saw Zach Reem step up and grab that spot and never let it go. And so, you, as you said, you really haven't seen somebody able to do that this season. And now you kind of have some questions you know, your middle infield, there's a little bit of a question there at shortstop. You're not sure what the answer is. You know, you have a corner infield spot that hasn't really settled, but Dylan Noisy has certainly settled in, it seems like, and hasn't moved out of center much. And I mean, he's leading your team in most offensive categories now. Yeah. In many respects, Dylan's, you could make the case that he's been the MVP of the team Mm -hmm. in the the first, uh, we don't really call it the first half, but I guess and we're certainly into Big 12 play, you know, with the Texas series two weeks ago. But uh, I think we're at that point now where you can start to think about everything that's been behind us as being one part of the season. And we're really in conference play at this point. And Noisy's probably been the MVP so far. Um, I, I think the, the shortstop thing is is uh, doesn't seem to have the ripples. Like, we're not seeing – I mean, I guess when Gabe came in, we saw a little bit of a ripple effect with Gabe playing short. And he had to get somebody else out in the outfield – the only other way that the shortstop thing would create a ripple 
if Coach Stadlock doesn't go back to Baker or if he doesn't put Morrell there, I guess if he's, if he's stuck Noisy there, then it would create a ripple in the outfield. But right. Noisy's so comfortable in center field. For a guy that, you know, when I saw fall ball and even in the early spring, we saw Dylan do a ton of shortstop. I mean, every day you go out there, it'd be him and him and Baker. Right, and, and Coach Tadlock mentioned early in the season, he talked about expecting to see Noisy in the middle infield a little bit as he was trying guys around, and then we've never seen that happen. Well, he's certainly capable of playing short, but he's also been, and I had asked J-Bob at one time, Coach Thomas had said, how will Noisy handle the outfield? And this was very early in the very first weekend when he was out there kind of running around, and he goes, we think, we think he's got a chance to be the best out of all of them defensively. And and that may be that may be the case. He yeah. may, you know, he, he he has probably handled that with uh, you know with greater ease than than uh, I would have thought. Not not that he wasn't capable of it, but just is there going to be an adjustment period? And boy, he's been pretty good from the get. He has, if I remember right, he started out and left, and then yep. quickly transitioned to center after they tried Gabe out a little bit. And he's been impressive. And just to run run through the stat line, I mean, he's batting a three eighty eight. He's leading the team. He's leading with 28 runs, 31 hits. At one point, he was number two in the nation in triples. He's got four right now, so I imagine he's still in that conversation. Second with home runs. He's Well, he's second in ribbies uh, behind Cam. I mean, leading in slugging percentage, on-base percentage. I mean, it's just on and on. Yeah. He's second in walks. I mean, he's really been clutch. And, you know, coming in as he's a sophomore. I mean, he played a, a year in, in McLennan last year, and then now here he is. And, I mean, talk about jumping in and making an impact. Yeah, he's been uh... – really been fantastic i mean the probably the the best the best compliment we can give him is exactly what we've said here's here's probably your mvp so far and and uh, you know it's interesting to see him move around he had uh, he actually let off on uh monday in the final game of the stetson series or the final game of the right. final game deal and you know and i fully support that i think over the course and this is just my guess over the course of a season, and it, this can actually be verified. I just need the time to do it. But um, <laughs> my guess is that over the course of a season, that a leadoff man will get six or seven, maybe eight more plate appearances than the two hole, you know, than the three hole, than the four hole on down. And and over time, the idea of noisy young Holt being those guys that are getting inclined, getting getting those extra plate appearances is is very appealing to me, and and certainly when when those batting orders are set up, it, it's it's you know there's some right left thought that goes into it, some right left matchups and things like that. You're they're thinking about what's going to structure best for that ball game rather than thinking about the totality of the year, seven or eight extra plate appearances. But I think. Uh, you know, I just like the idea of, of Noisy being right up there at the top. And I now like the idea of creating some sort of uh, opportunities uh, that, that would force Josh to either get pitched to or or walked and, and we're, you know, we're immediately in the first inning in a, in a run scoring opportunity or in a first and second situation or something like that is. As Josh goes along and gets his gets that quad back, you know, just gets a little more comfortable with it, and that thing gets healthy again. The idea of him being near as close to the top of the order is is appealing, and that may be the three hole. Uh, I'm not right. saying that it should change a whole lot, but just the idea of him getting near the top and, and being someone teams have to contend with is appealing. Well, and you mentioned Brian Klein. I mean, another guy just Mister Consistency this season. I mean, he's 
all over the place. I mean, he just feels almost like a guaranteed hit right now. He's just really, really played well. He's had two errors on the season, you know, and those were early, and he's just been strong kind of all the way around, which has always been his M.O., but his bat seems a lot more consistent this season. Yeah, and he's a he's a really consistent personality. He's a consistent – just a consistent guy. I think, you know, his his ability to, to string together competitive bats is really remarkable. There's been – a couple times here in the last in the last week in this five game set that he picked up sacrifice flies with the you know with the runner on third and the infield in and then just big contact and and it, you know and I, I I like think about stats and look at on base percentage and dig a little bit and you know calculate OPS in my own head as I look at these guys and do different things but I think for for Klein hitting behind Josh I think him having good looking numbers a good looking stat line is important. Um, I've, because I think all of that is going to be uh, is going to lend itself to the RBI total, which you'll need hitting in that four hole and hitting behind Josh. Uh, I think there's going to be a lot of times, especially with left-handers on the mound, that teams can pitch around Josh. And that, and I'm not this isn't some big secret that I'm divulging or some right, some big, <laughs> you know, some big high-level analysis here. But you can see where a team with a left-hander and an open base may pitch around Josh and say we can go left-left against Klein and and even if Brian gets a base hit he's not the power threat and the danger threat that Josh can be so Klein stringing together the walks like he does and stringing together good contact and and uh being a threat the way he can be being the line drive guy that he can be being the doubles power guy that he can be I think it's critical he's if his batting average stays up there where it is now up in that neighborhood and he's still drawing walks and doing all the things that he's doing and that OPS is up there really good and high, that's going to be a really good thing for this team. I named him in my last episode the player of the series kind of through that five game. Yeah, He went six for 16, three runs, six ribbies, as you're talking about how important that is, five walks and had a sack fly. I mean, what more can you ask for from that guy? Yep, and he'd been really quiet. He had a really quiet weekend in Austin, although he did have the big – sack fly and the that broke the game over as much as those games in austin right <laughs> I, uh, any run was a game-breaking deal but when that in that saturday ball game they had, they had gotten you know we had second third nobody out and they got josh to pop up and they immediately had bk down oh two one two count and he was able to you know to get a fly ball out there medium depth the right field and score the run and then and then a couple of runs behind that and and salvage that game the the Saturday game of that series and uh, you know his his ability to be competitive is you know he, it's it's just important I and mean, it really absolutely is. well let's kind of we'll set the stage here a little bit just kind of run across what the season's been and then we'll start talking about the Kansas State Wildcats sure. So 16 and six on the season so far, one and two in conference, but, and I've said this before on the podcast, not a bad loss in Austin. I mean, two one run games, you know, against elite pitching in really a postseason atmosphere against these record crowds at Dish Falk. I mean, you know, you walk out and you wish you'd gotten the series win. You wish you got the sweep, but it's not like you just went out there and got smoked. You're frustrated. I mean, you're not hitting with runners in scoring position, but not not some, you know, horrible, the sky is falling kind of weekend out there. I agree. And, uh, you know that, and you've probably heard me say it umpteen times that 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 series could have been a sweep either direction. It could be two or mm-hmm. three either direction. Really thin margin, and and when you go back and replay the TCU Texas series from this past weekend in Fort Worth, it was the same way. Texas had them down two nothing in the ninth. TCU came back with three on Friday. Then TCU uh, Texas blew them out on Saturday, and then you know 
Sunday, Texas boots a first and third one out ground ball and the eight eight with an eight to seven lead and one out in the bottom of the eighth. And if they turn it, they're headed to the ninth. And they didn't turn it. And I put my eyes back on our field and our game for a minute and looked back up and it was twelve eight a minute later. And so they walked out of that series feeling the way we did in Austin the week before in terms of in terms of, you know, man, we could have swept those guys. And as it is, we got one ball game and that's that's just the that's just the thin margin and the need for you know really good really clean play um, as the as the you know especially when playing the top top of this conference. Well, probably not facing the top of the conference this weekend. The the Wildcats they're eleven and thirteen on the season. They're zero and three in conference play. They were swept by Oklahoma State this weekend. They've only won a couple of series this year as far as that goes. They did take two against Northern Illinois. In a two game, they beat the San Francisco Dons two out of three. But other than that, just really kind of been a struggle for them this season. And as I said, swept by the Cowboys over the weekend. So, you know, what are we expecting to see going in? Did see today that Micah Dallas getting his second start. He'll be the Friday starter. You'll see Killian Saturday and then either Landing or Montgomery on Sunday. But, you know, what can we expect to see from the Wildcats and then maybe from the Red Raiders too? You know, the the thing that jumps out at me about K-State is, first of all, it's a place that, that can be tough to play. And, and my mind goes back to when I did radio. They had a stretch from about 2008, 2009 to about 2013. They were regional teams most of those years. They won the league, I believe, in 2013 or right around there. They had some really good teams. The year I was doing radio that I went up there, they were really good. As Spike Dykes would say, a rolling ball of butcher knives. And <laughs> and they uh, one of their two relievers, maybe both of their relievers, they could really shorten a game. Both of those guys are in the big leagues. They're one of them's in the big league, and the other one's close. And I can't think of their names right now, but you know they had a they had a formula and a recipe. And and you know Coach Tadlock's first year here, went up, Tech went up there and got swept. And so it's it's one of those places that's been you know, in, in given years has been really tough to play. Now, as far as this K-State team, you know, I see two guys that have made starts every weekend, one with six starts and one with four starts that are over six ERA. And and I thought their ball club last year, and of course, they're in a coaching transition. This is a first year of Pete Hughes, who was the former coach at OU. I thought last year's K-State team was one of the worst pitching staffs or weakest pitching staffs that – that I'd seen in the league in a long time. And and that, I don't mean that in an ins- insulting way. I'm just saying that rather matter-of-factly. I just thought sure. they really struggled last year, the quality of their arms. And so we see a couple guys down there that haven't, haven't pitched very well um, and that are getting starts and regular turns. But then we also see, you know, six starts, 34-plus innings, their, their leader in innings has a 1.83 ERA and a 3-0 record and, and – uh, 39 to 8 strikeouts to walks and I mean everything that tells you man that guy's throwing well and then I see a closer with 10 appearances four saves uh 12 innings two hits four walks 17 Ks I mean like some nasty nasty numbers in a close right. so it, it, it just as you look at that weekend however the thing lines up They'll probably pitch well at least one time, really well. Right. And uh, I mean, you're going to somebody else's place. You never know if anybody's ever going to elevate their game and do good things. It tends to be when they're at home and comfortable. You got to believe that there'll be a focused, kind of hungry club coming off of getting swept in Stillwater. But uh, 
just those two guys having really good numbers, you would think they're going to be able to pitch well once. Right, absolutely, yeah. And it, now remind me, last year the that series at K State that was the series that uh, they put a heated tent over the over the bullpen, didn't they? It was some pretty foul weather at, in in Manhattan. That I don't remember, but I don't doubt it one bit. And and I know that what I'm seeing is that I saw a big blob of rain kind of over the whole state of Kansas on Friday. And then Saturday, a high of 47 and Sunday, sunny and 52. And so, you know, just in looking at that, we may be headed for a doubleheader on Saturday or Sunday, maybe. But, you know, it's too too early to play weather, man, nor is it my job. But <laughs> it, it just wouldn't be out of the question. I know even the weather here is going to be a little bit dicey because right now we've been in the high 60s and 70s all week and it's been beautiful but it sounds like here here we'll be down to 50s on saturday and sunday so you can imagine what it'll be in kansas right well and and it is important to be a little bit of a baseball weatherman because oh, yeah. certainly we've seen that the red raiders did not like playing in the cold and rainy weather in frisco and you, kind of going back to last season it was the same thing in kentucky as well so maybe a little bit of a trend there that you know playing in that rainy cold stuff and that's not what we're used to out here you know, used to a little bit of wind, but not so much the rest. And they don't seem to respond quite as well in that. And, you know, just going on the road in general is just tough. I mean, you're not going to go get an easy one on the road. You're not just going to walk into a sweep on the road in the Big 12. So yeah. it's certainly certainly things to think about there for sure. I remember two years ago going to West Virginia, and I, I went on that trip just to go. I mean, I, I, didn't, I didn't go with the team, but I went up there to watch those games. I just wanted to see see the ballpark and all that. And it was cold and dreary and rainy, and Peck took two of three. And they were all very low scoring, close games, just tight. It was tight the whole weekend. And that 2017 club was really good. That that was a uh, that was a good ball club. And Gingery was as good as he good as he, mm-hmm. oh, as he as he was that year. And he actually the loss that weekend came in the game he started. Now he didn't get the loss, but you know it's it was just but it was a series win, and it was really a hard fought series win in some dreary conditions. And uh, you know one one thing that's interesting in two coach. Tadlock's credit he'll even say it like and I know Jamie will do some of those pregame interviews but if you ever if he ever asks or the first time he interviewed him he'd go down there coach whatever you know how do you deal with the wind Tim would be like the what and basically he was saying I don't even I'm not even going to acknowledge that it's windy today or that it's cold today or that it's rainy today (laughs) you know just he's not letting the guys buy into it it is what it is and we're going to deal with it and uh, you know beyond letting them wear their cold weather gear if it's cold outside or wearing sleeves or whatever it is. I mean, I, I don't say he's just burying his head in the sand, but I understand he he's as good as anybody that I've been around and creating a tone of, of not letting guys buy into cold, wind, rain, heat. You know, it was 107 here for that regional last oh, year. Oh, gosh, yeah. New Mexico State. And, you know, obviously made sure that there was towels and all the – accommodations you need to keep keep guys safe in that that environment safe and productive but at the same time you're gonna sit around and whine about it because there's nothing to do about it and well he's certainly not a guy that'll let people make a lot of excuses no. he's not gonna make them I, I one of my favorite moments when all the matt wells hiring was going on and coach tadlock filled in on kirby's show for about half the show yeah. and yeah. i remember geo asking him or what do you tell a guy when he asks how do you recruit to Lubbock? And he said, "Well, if he has to ask, I'm not going to hire him because he's not worth his salt." <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. And as somebody that you know, for me, and I don't know about you, but I pay a lot of attention to what the national guys are saying about Tech. It, you know, kind of helps inform my opinion, gives me something to be mad about too, because sure. you know I'm a thin-skinned Red Raider too. And they, uh, 
you know, a lot of times they, you know, they want to write off last year in particular, they want to write off some of the offensive production based on the wind. But I mean, the wind doesn't only blow when the red Raiders are at bat, everybody has to deal with it or, you know, use it as, as an advantage one way or the other. So no point in making excuses out of it. No doubt. And I think, you know, one of the things that's interesting about, about Lubbock and our ballpark, I think teams and just, I think people, as they think about this ballpark and want to evaluate it, and uh, it's really offensive, you know, for whatever it is. And then those things can be measured. In fact, boydsworld.com does some ballpark, some park factors, you know, that, that are something interesting to kind of think about and talk about another day. But, but, mm-hmm. you know, the fact that we tend to, that a few more runs are scored here than the average ballpark, but exactly how many, and it's, it tends to be at, you know, three or four or five percent extra offense here than other places. Not a huge number. It's not Albuquerque. But one thing to think about that I'd be interested to know, this could be a trivia question that we could throw out there. If you ask what's the highest elevation campus in the Big 12, I'm sure that people would probably come to West Virginia. You know, that'd be my guess, just because you think about it and it's mountainous and hilly and all. And that's barely over a thousand feet. And we're at about 3,000 feet here. So we're at an elevation that's way different. And and it's interesting because, you know, the they always talk about the Denver Broncos and the Denver teams really played all that stuff and try to create a mindset of elevation and it's hard to breathe and da 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 da. da. And I guess 3,000 feet isn't enough to do that, but I wouldn't be surprised that. You know that there aren't some factors either fatigue related in the in the endurance sports like baseball and football or basketball and football, and then to think about it in terms of hey we're at an elevation here that's quite a bit higher than everywhere else the ball's going to fly a little bit better here. Sure, I mean yeah, it, we're not in Denver, but no, no, no. It, it's enough to make a difference. Absolutely, compared to where you're coming from, yeah. Well, Gus, I know you got dinner coming up, and I have one question. Sure. Um, I, I do a little segment. I call it "Throwing Chad with Raider Red." We'll rename it to to Ask Doctor Mike this time. And um, <laughs> I had a, it was an email question from a listener that's been around. His name's Cody, and he kind of explained a little bit. But his the main heart of his question: Do you think we'll see some sort of a Duchetter combo this season? And he really threw in Montgomery and Bonin as kind of the candidates for for creating that. Do you do you think we'll see anything like that again, or was that just born out of a real specific situation? That was born out of a specific conversation, but uh, it's not out of the question to see it again. I think if we were going to see it again, I think it would be out of a Bonin and Lanning Mm. type situation because he would probably want the guy. Now, with Dushek last year, was a lot of blister problems. He he was coming off the TJ and all that. And so it had its own kind of unique set of elements. But if it came to that, I think it would be – more likely to be a Bonin or maybe a Montgomery and then a Lanning behind it because I think that Lanning would offer sort of the consistency that you would want behind a guy that can either be really, really, really good or even really, really, really short if things don't go right. You know, if, if Bonin, I mean, Bryce has been, you know, some dominant stuff at times and then he's had those days where he's struggled with his command. And so if he only went a couple of innings and was really fighting it, that Lanning could come in behind it, and then if, if he was having one of those days where he's going to go six and a third of one hit, then you know Lanning can sit out there and stretch. But I, I, all of that to say we're talking about a what if and not necessarily something that I would expect to see, but if we did, 
my guess would be it would be a Bond and Lanning thing. Gotcha. And I think Cody, in his explanation, he's thinking like nasty lefty and gas. Sure. You know, that's what you're putting together sure. there. But uh, in Dushek and Shedder, I mean, you had a guy that was experienced, but like you said, there was some problems with the length as far as innings because of the blisters. But then you had another guy that had all the stuff he could ever want, but just didn't seem to do that great coming out in a start, but he did fine coming out of the pen. So it just made sense to pair him up and, and use them together. Is that a fair way to look at that? Oh, I think it absolutely is. And it was funny because Dushek's name came up uh, this weekend, and it really came up on the heels of the Sunday game, the the parrot, the young young man, the uh-huh. left-hander from Stetson that threw so well, seven innings, three hits, two runs against us, and uh, you know was was the key part of them winning that ball game on Sunday. And at the end of the game, I was down there just with my son afterwards, and he said, "Man, that guy was that guy was Dylan Dushek." And I go, "You know what? That's a great comparison because the dude was pitching kind of in the high 80s, throwing strikes, changing speed, both sides of the play, doing all the all the kind of boring cliche things that Dushek did for so long that made him so successful. And that guy was right there with him doing that. And I thought that's that is a great great analogy. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one last thing, and that was my one one listener question. One last thing that was just exciting to see. Got a text and I saw that Michael Davis ended up on the bench for the for the yeah. the big league game for the uh, spring training game between the Twins and the Yankees. I mean, I mean, how about a guy in his second pro season, you know, out there at spring training, getting pulled in as an extra player on the bench for a game like that? What does that mean for him? Yeah, it's, it means that they're interested in him as a prospect. Now, it doesn't mean that he's going to end up there anytime soon, but it means that somebody noticed him at some point in a minor league camp and said, hey, get him over there. Mm-hmm. And he had a number and a jersey with his name on it, I'm guessing. And just to be exposed to that, it's like being the ninth grader that calls gets called up for the playoffs right. or whatever. <laughs> and, and there's talk of them. Actually, he's been working some as catcher uh, at catcher this year and working in kind of a super super utility mode. And, and I'm thinking, well, we saw him play a little bit of third here, but a lot of second and some short, and he handled all of that. And so he's, he's got an interesting, unique skill set. And so uh, and a cannon. I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, well, that's the key. That and that's a big part of it because that 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 is what plays at all those other yep. positions that makes him makes him kind of an interesting guy. And uh, you know, I'm I'm really happy for him. And uh, you know, of of note, last Friday uh, the Rangers beat the Dodgers, and it was former Coronado Mustang and Red Raider and Angelo State first baseman turned right-hander Blake Bass that got the save. Oh, that's awesome! And it was kind of a similar deal. Now he's he's been in pro ball you know, three or four years, whereas Michael's in his first, you know, or first full year mm-hmm. or this year. But Blake got the save against the Dodgers, and my guess is he'll end up in double-A this year. Of course, you think about his life and where he's been since Eric Gutierrez beat him out at first base here at Tech, and it's probably an unanswered prayer situation because my guess is he really wanted to win that first base job and play at Texas Tech at home in front of his family transfers out to Angelo State somebody puts him on the mound and it changes his life yeah yeah you go from a like a Wally Pip situation to now you're yeah. now you're going to to double a where prospects go I mean absolutely yeah. and he's got a shot no doubt that's awesome well Gus hey thank you so much for your time I, I don't want to keep you any longer but this has been great and I'd love to get you back on and, and just talk about more of your history and all the things you've done around yeah. tech and baseball and we'll just drop that as a standalone episode I know that I have listeners that would absolutely love to hear more from you and about you well, you just say when, and I'll do it. We get home from Manhattan. Hopefully, we'll have some success. You want to, you want to hear my voice again? <laughs> Absolutely, man. <laughs> well, hey, thanks so much, and y'all have a safe trip, and and have a good one, and and uh, just have a good call out there. Yeah, perfect. Thanks. I'll see you around the ballpark. Thanks, man. Appreciate you.
Well, that was the man himself, Dr. Mike Gustafson. If you don't uh, live around the Lubbock area, Mike appears pretty regularly on a Saturday morning radio show. It's called Thetford Nashby with a couple of characters around here. A lot of fun to listen to. And But I tell you what, if you don't listen to the radio broadcast for Texas Tech baseball, you are missing out. Mike is just an absolute wealth of knowledge, both about Texas Tech as a program and about baseball in general. I mean, as a guy that does a little bit of color analysis myself for baseball, just at a, at a high school level, man, the things that he knows about the game, the things that he can see in pitches and what pitchers are doing and what defenses are doing and stuff. It's just absolutely unbelievable. He's so, so impressive. Just love getting to talk to him and appreciate him coming on. Hopefully he'll be on a little bit more often. Well, that's going to do it for us today. As you know, the Red Raiders headed to Manhattan this weekend. They'll be back in action at home against the Kansas Jayhawks in a couple of weekends. We will be in your feed on Monday recapping this K-State series and then next Thursday, looking ahead to the Kansas Jayhawks. So until then, if I don't see you around, have a good one. Enjoy watching some baseball. Don't miss the basketball game, 8.39 p.m. Central against the Michigan Wolverines on CBS. And with that, have a good one. Wreck em. Thanks for tuning in to Dinger Derby and sharing our love for Texas Tech Red Raider baseball. You can connect with Keith on Twitter at Dinger underscore Derby and find more Texas Tech sports content at stakingtheplains.com. Help us out by rating us and leaving a review on iTunes. And remember to tell your friends about the show. Keith will be back next week with another episode of Dinger Derby. And until then, wreck of tech. Keep your hand on your gun. Don't you trust anyone. There's just one kind of man that you can trust. That's a dead man or a gringo like me. Be the first one to fire Every man is a liar There's just one kind of man who tells the truth That's a dead man or a gringo like me